My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. In this thread, I'm going to be talking about what I have learned about health or well-being or the means of healing when things don't go right. And I suppose I've learned what I've learned through my lifetime as pursuing my own balance, my own equilibrium, um, through learning to be an art therapist and nature-based sort of eco-psychology-inspired therapist for 25 years, and from being a parent um, to four children now grown and uh, very recently um, a grandparent. And so what I'm trying to do in this thread is to synthesize some of that learning and share it and hope that it is useful to people on their own journey. And it's very much exploring this at the level of the individual. Other threads of the podcast look at community and systems and the things that affect the individual. And these, of course, are connected. And so there will be some elements that I talk about here. But for the most part, I'm focusing on what it's like to be well as a human and the factors that go into that. So starting off with a good place to start is life itself. It is incredible when you speak with or read about and learn about how impossible life is, how many things could get in the way of a human life arriving and all life arriving on the planet. And so at the very beginning where you have a conception and the little creature that is forming from the material of a mother and father is bringing into being a huge lineage of genetic material. And so we start off with the ingredients that we come into the world with. And from that earliest moment of conception, we sit within an environment. And it is the lifelong, you know, um, debate that many people have is, is it nature or is it nurture? And of course, the answer is it's both. Um, so that genetic material that we start with and then the interaction of the genetic material of the mother whose womb we grow in 
and the environment of that womb all start having an influence. And at that point, what the woman's body is doing is nurturing the life that's growing. And so you can see why her genetic material, her health and her womb all have an effect on what is growing into a life inside her. And so just to say that, because as you think about it, it's amazing when you think there is so much going on already before we ever are born. Um, and then when we are born, you know, we talking about the risk to life again, we are this species that stood up and that changed everything. It allowed our brains to grow bigger but it meant that um, the hips and pelvis changed position and size. And so childbirth became the next risky thing in the journey into life for a human baby. And so there's the next influence of the environment is the kind of birth that we all have. So, you know, before we've even taken our first breath, as we come down the birth canal and as we arrive into this world, there's already lots of influences on our health and our well-being. So when we are born, one of the things a friend of mine used to say is she thought that babies were born with constitutions, not personalities. And I suppose what she was talking about was that baby that arrives and is what you know people call a fussy baby or a hard-to-soothe baby versus a baby that's floppy and relaxed. And so that how a mum is going to respond or a parent is going to respond nurturing that baby, there's already an interaction going on. So just at that earliest level, we're not really individuals, but yet we start having this play between our environment and our constitution, our nature, our genetic makeup. So at no point can you really describe what would be a normal delivery, a normal genetic makeup, a normal um, environment for human babies. There is just the one that we come into. What you could possibly talk about, though, is the optimum conditions for life, the optimum conditions um, for wellness. And so right at the beginning, what we would know is that it, there is an important piece around regulation, because a human baby, a primate baby, is going to need nurturing by a primary care or a parent for a very long time before they can self-regulate and individuate and manage to um, grow to an independent level and look after themselves. And in fact, um, when you think of the childbirth risks and the caring risks, actually how we really optimally live, which is talked about in other threads in this podcast, is we live in community. And so the mother um, and child that uh, are in that primary relationship of birth giving are supported by other carers, other adults and other people within the village. And so that that wider environment of care obviously influences how a mother is caring. And I think modern mothers in many um, cultures are under so many stresses of the cultures that we live in today 
that we don't have the village that cares for the mother. And so if there isn't the optimum environment for nurturing, um, a parent uh, and a primary carer can often feel like they're not giving the optimum because there are so many other factors and barriers that get in the way, even at that very, very early stage. The stressors, the chemical reactions that are around in the environment, the food, the nutrition, all these things that go into that early, early makeup of, of the optimum health for a baby. But just to say what a couple of the things are, um, and I suppose I'd always have thought talking with fellow parents that almost the primary emotion around parenting seems to be guilt in modern life because there isn't that support network in so many ways where there's a lot left to the individual family, to the, you know, to a parent, maybe parenting alone, um, all the economic stresses and so on. So when I'm talking about these optimum things, I'm really talking about them from the level of a primate baby and what a primate baby needs. Um, so primate babies, human babies are born with a need to, ha- to have close physical contact with a carer. And that close physical contact is the beginning of the nurturing and it's the beginning of connection and it's the beginning of bonding. But it has a very physiological function as well. It actually regulates a baby's heart rate. It regulates a baby's breathing. And it also is a clue and a signal and a kind of interaction just like it was in the womb for other needs to be met. So there are um, communication, early, early communication about comfort levels, about hunger, um, about temperature regulation, all these things that happen early, early on that are part of the optimum. So obviously, if a mom or a dad or a parent um, that's looking after a baby, if there's been stress in the birth, if there's been circumstances that do not allow for a slow month of bonding and and lots of care for the primary carers, then already you've got a baby who might not get the optimum regulation. And they they need that regulation from just because they've literally just come out of the womb and that's been all regulated inside of the mother's body. And then they still need to feel the breathing, to hear the heart rate, to feel the sensory touch and comfort and to do communication. So I think for later health, as that baby develops, one of the most interesting parts of physiological and emotional regulation have to do with the nervous system. Because a primate baby, if you set a monkey baby, an ape baby down, a human baby down for too long, they will scream and scream and scream. And that is because they are meant to be in this long, safe relationship with a primary carer. If you put a little bird in a nest and its mother or father flies away and leaves it for a long time, it will go really, really quiet and it won't even poop. And that's because a bird is evolved to be independent quite early. It gets fed grows up and flies away in the nest in a season. And its survival mechanism is to be quiet and to wait for mother to return and feed it 
Um, it's not under threat in the nest. It can be quite safe there as long as a predator doesn't smell it, which is why they don't poop. Um, but a primate baby is in immediate danger um, if they are set down. So they're held physically and carried about for a huge long time compared to other creatures and certainly baby birds. So they are not raised to independence in the first year. They're not raised to independence in the second year. It's years and years. So that close bonding and that kind of close contact for regulation is important. And how it relates to the nervous system is that if there is a sense danger from that very early stage, there is an, a nervous system going on to high alert, not being in a calm and soothed place. So Maybe that high alert comes from sudden noise or maybe that high alert comes from a lack of sensation, not being held and swaddled or touched. Or maybe that high alert comes from it going too long without food and that there's a hunger alert going on. And so in our earliest days as primates and as early humans, there was also lots of other threats in our environment. And so one of the things that as a baby grows, that a mother or a, a primary carer or father is involved with helping the baby, is involved with letting them know when that alert is accurate and needed and when it's okay and can be soothed. And so there's that communication that's going on between the carer and the child from very early on to go, yes, that is dangerous as they start to crawl towards something that is poisonous or that is hot like a fire. And so that alert state is useful and is a communication. But if a child is growing up in an environment where everybody is stressed and everybody is anxious and everybody is oppressed, then it's harder and harder for everybody involved to give the calming and soothing signals to infants. That's something that comes from the outer environment that might affect a nervous system. But there are also things going back to the genetic makeup and the constitution and the personality that a baby is born with. There are other things that could cause interruptions to a soothing and a stimulus and an alert state and that cycle that we go through all the time. For example, maybe there could be sensory inputs that are coming in in strange ways. There could be some garbledness of sound. There could be a hearing issue or potentially a sight issue. There could be other kinds of wiring, if you like, brain patterning that cause longer periods of confusion and take longer for a child to make sense of the sensory information coming in. So it isn't only the connection and the nurture with a primary parent, it's also what happens that's in the child's own constitution that helps them learn the same signals, helps them. So when going back to that idea of a fussy baby or a not fussy baby, that that may be coming from the child themselves, that they're, they're, they're like the, uh, energetic baby. They're the chill and relaxed baby. And those are, are 
part of the the regulation. So you'll you'll hear parents talking about that when they talk about a child that's easy to settle to sleep, you know, or very very good digestion, their sustenance and relaxes and digests with ease, likes a lot of stimulus or doesn't like a lot of stimulus, likes a lot of noise, or doesn't like a lot of noise. So we have all this incredible diversity of personality um, and characteristics and genetics. And that, by the way, when I'm talking in other threads about systems being designed for the maximum resilience, um, diversity is a key ingredient in that. So having all of the different types of humans that we are and all of the different types of parents that exist, that is why it's hard to talk um, totally specifically about any one individual because it's all this multitude of interactions. However, that being said, there is still this idea of development coming from this early, early stage of bonding and nurture and attachment. Describing what is optimal begins to give clues to an individual who grows up through a period of their life and doesn't receive that. And there can be so many different reasons why that happens, as I've hinted at. There can be trauma surrounding a family, there can be trauma in an individual, there can be oppression and poverty and resources that are problematic and there can be fractious relationships and demands of work and life. Um, and then there can be all the personality types that come along with their different needs. And this interaction is about the primary carer of a child figuring out how to help meet the needs and how to understand the communication. And, you know, again, in a village culture, traditionally, there were many, many mothers and many, many fathers and many uncles and many brothers and many adults and many different genetic and even gender variation across the village so that there was trying to meet the needs of a child was held within a community. You can begin to imagine that if it's not happening in that way, then that level of calmness, alertness, knowing which is the difference, being able to soothe and regulate the physiological and the psychological and the emotional regulation that all comes into play there, then that can be a spiral that can affect people very long into life. Even if maybe there was a very stressful or impoverished state when a mother, or father, or a primary carer, you know, was looking after um, the baby in infancy, and then maybe things got better, something got more stable, more support was arrived at for the family. Um, and so the rest of a, a child's uh, life, and you know, settles. Even so, some of the issues that might arise in later life can come about just from this very early stage of interruption. But I'm hoping that what, by describing it in that sort of way, I begin to give a sense of what can help. Because if interruption happens, if attachment and regulation doesn't happen, if it's interrupted, if connections are severed at that stage, if there are these barriers 
to attachment, then there could be coping mechanisms that show up as a child and young person grows. They might form attachments to other things, pseudo-satisfiers, you'd call those, so they didn't get the satisfaction of the kind of uh, attachment and nurturance and regulation that they needed when they were babies, so they might seek out another kind of soothing. Um, and there are many, many ways that people find cope um, and find a pseudo-satisfier, something that allows them come back out of a anxious, alert, stressed, even panicked state to calm. Um, but what I'm going to talk about are the ones that can help lead to a, a positive growth so that each new connection, each help, each satisfier is an actual satisfaction and that it builds up to the, if you like, the next layer of, of personal growth, the, which is forming relationships, being in community, which I'll talk about perhaps on another occasion. So what I'm going to talk about is that going back and realizing that you could use much of the same means that the primary carer was using with an infant to start over and re-regulate your own um, sensory system and your own alert system. Um, so when I talk about the alert system, I'm talking about what we know of as fight, flight, or freeze. So those are the human responses to danger. And they're there, as you can hear from each of them, there's always this uh, micro moment of assessment. So because there's a choice, because there's three of them, is the thing that's alerting me, that my senses have all gone on high alert, is the thing that's alerting me, telling me that I need to run away from it, because that would be the best strategy for this danger? Is it telling me that I need to not move at all, freeze, because that would be the best strategy for this danger? Or is it telling me that I need to literally get my heckles up and act to defend myself or perhaps to defend my infant? So that kind of um, fight response that's there as a defense. And the trouble is that there are actually very, very, very few situations that that response is needed unless you're living in a war zone. That's not always the kind of traditional war you might think of with soldiers fighting each other, but war zones where there's ghettos and drug lords and terrorism um, of one kind or another. And then you're going to be using th that actual danger alert to to suss out life or death danger. And that's, that's the thing about the alert. It's like, it's a threat to survival. So the infant sit being set down and walked away from, it's a threat to survival and they can die, cannot do fright, flight or freeze. So they kind of fight by screaming and raging. They go into that kind of rage. When trying to figure this out for later on in life, 
it is a matter of using many of the same techniques, if you like, on the self that a primary carer might have. So I mentioned what those were before. Contact and being held and touch. Also food and also sounds like mothers singing and soothing through tone of voice to an infant. And also what a child sees around them, temperature and smell even, uh, all these sensory inputs. So one of the ways to begin to kind of soothe yourself is to find out where are the environments that you feel most calm. And can you tell the difference between that environment and an environment you don't feel calm? Are you aware that you might be on a low level alert all the time? Are you aware that you're not experiencing that feeling of being held by the environment that you're in? So for me, I have found that the tactile experience of working with um, art materials, or later I discovered in my practice as an art therapist, I, I worked for 25 years as an art therapist, and about probably 10 years in, um, I started integrating my love of and passion for nature into my practice, because I realized that somewhere in nature, most people feel held. There are obviously reasons why people might feel threatened in natural spaces, but it is something that it's the environment that, that it is the community of life that goes beyond the human village. And it is that community of life that we are ultimately deeply connected with, beginning to potentially explore that connection with nature, especially if you're not someone who is an indigenous person growing up with that connection in nature. Very few people these days have grown up with that freedom to explore and understand and be in communication and dialogue with all of the rest of life that is our family on, on planet Earth. If humans were the source of the stress that was going around the primary carers, therefore going around the baby, that sometimes it's the non-human life or the non-human objects that can be very soothing because they don't come with that charged stressor. And also the different types of sensory inputs that different people like, um, that diversity that I was speaking about earlier, that can kind of come in then in a very specific individual way. So somebody who likes the feeling of a cold, heavy, round beach pebble in their hand, that might be very soothing for someone. Someone who likes to lie with their back up against a tree and feel something solid beneath them, that might be very soothing. Somebody who might like to just play with sand through their fingers that could be very soothing. Or someone who likes to touch the, the heaviness and the squishiness and the malleability of a piece of clay. And those are heavy things that I've talked about. But then think perhaps it's something light. It might be watching and blowing a dandelion seeds off of a flower head or something similar. Floating and light could be the type of sunlight 
that is dappled and light. could be the quality of the light. It could be feathers, crispy leaves, leaves on trees. And, and you keep going. I mean, these are sensations. There's smell that comes into it. Forest floor might be a smell or a fresh sea breeze might be a, a smell. And even all of the touch and the tastes of natural things, berries, nuts, things that they associate with food in its raw state, freshly picked. These are all things that can be really, really soothing. And and what I'm distinguishing them is that they are satisfiers. They're going to the root need for calmness, for comfort, for holding. They're not a pseudo-satisfier, which might give some soothing, but what a pseudo-satisfier, just to clarify, that is something that appears to satisfy the need and can go on appearing to satisfy the need, but it isn't getting to the deepest need. So if the deepest need was for a nurture, attachment, connection, safety, that it there's still, it's just like a little piece. It's like getting a small bit of a meal and not the whole thing. And quite a number of pseudo-satisfiers come with secondary bad effects. So it could be satisfying to eat a lot of, you know, cake and chocolate, and it could be satisfying to have a lot of wine or beer or whiskey or spirits. And it could, of course, be satisfying for all number of other substances and, and drugs and so on. And I'm not here talking about drugs that are opening the senses, things that I might talk about more in the thread on our ancestors and how the gating of sensory information was something that our ancestors didn't really have. They opened all of their senses in the environment that they lived in because it was a key ingredient in their survival and their community to be in communication with all the life that was around them. So what I'm referring to here are, are other kinds of suppressant drugs that calm or soothe on a temporary basis or give artificial kind of elevated energies or highs. And, and they are coping mechanisms and they relate very directly to voids and emptiness and feelings of not having had connection. Um, there's some really interesting studies about soldiers coming back from the Vietnam War who had injuries and who were on high doses of morphine, uh, codeine and so on in military hospitals. And there was a study that followed up what happened them later on and they found that the drug itself, which is a heroin derivative type of drug, wasn't the factor. Those that became addicts had left and were isolated, didn't have intact families and intact village and intact support. They were empty and alone and they had suffered trauma. And so those that went, who had also suffered trauma, you know, who went back into community and nurturing and family life and or village life that held them, they didn't have the same need for the pseudo-satisfier of becoming addicted to a pain medication. So it's really about finding a satisfier that soothes you, 
And for me, water is a key ingredient. I feel most soothed in, in warm water. If it can be warm water in the sea, fantastic. It doesn't have to be roasting. It just needs to be warm enough not to freeze me completely or a bath or, or even a shower. And that, that, you know, different people have different things that relax them. Another one that I really like is candlelight and firelight. I'm sitting talking here, Sean Chuckine talking to you uh, beside the fire this evening. If I switch off electric lights and I have just firelight, I find that very soothing. Quite a few members of my family are the opposite. They Their eyesight is different than mine and they find low light conditions quite stressful because they don't feel like they can see what's going on around them. So it's about trying to find what are the things that can bring you out of alert states and take up your practice of having access to them. Then the last step that can help with this is finding what not only calms you when you're in alert, but that can you conjure it up in your imagination when you don't have it? So if there's something alerting or stressful that's sending everything off and, and leaving you feeling that vulnerability, that survival instinct moment, uh, can you conjure up having developed a practice of maybe sitting looking at candlelight and firelight? Can I some other time when something is alerting me in, into that survival fright state, can I conjure it up and imagine it, the state, the feeling, and can I bring myself back into calmness? And where all of this then plays out in terms of attachment um, and connection is that it's very hard to form relationships with anything or anybody if you are anxious and stressed. If everything is causing that fight, flight, and freeze response, then relationships themselves are very hard to form in later life because everything is terrifying. And so while I'm not talking directly here and uh, today on this episode about relationship forming, which I may cover at some point later on, but today I wanted to kind of start off with the first layer of foundation that you can build on that can be something that can support relationships. And I would also say that we can be in relationship with the other than human world, sometimes as a first step, if human relationships have been really tough. Um, and that could be with a pet that, you know, many children have pets that are not animals. I have had children who've had pet sticks and pet rocks. Um, I, I think myself, I would have a relationship, uh, when I talk in about the practical skills I've learned and the, in providing food and shelter, I have very much a, a tangible relationship with plants, um, that feel like connection, feel like relationship, feel like communication. So it doesn't have to be a connection felt with a human, but a good place to start forming connection is to be calm because you imagine you're trying to make a relationship with a puppy. And if you're in a state of fear, uh, it's going to be very hard 
to make a relationship with a dog or a cat or a horse or a goat, you know, or whatever animal. Um, and that's the same if you're trying to make a relationship with a plant or with a person or with a rock or a stick um, or a mountain or a cottage or a fire. And we're, we are able to connect to all those things, but we need to be out of the threat state. So I hope that's been useful to just share some of how I've learnt and, and conceived of that particular support to well-being, support to something that all that many, many other things flow from, that foundational early life step of knowing how to soothe, how to regulate, because all these things connect to your breathing and your heart rate um, and your understanding of hunger and knowing what is a satisfier and what's enough. All these things start there and can be rebuilt at any time in life, no matter what the interruptions. So I hope that helps if you're trying to rebuild any part of that.